welcome to Disputes and Perspective. I'm Doug Cherry, a partner in the Disputes team at Reed Smith. This podcast series will discuss disputes-related trends, hot topics and developments occurring in the global legal landscape, and hopefully provide you with some helpful insights and practical tips. If you have any questions about any of the episodes, please feel free to contact our speakers. Hello and welcome back. We're going to talk to you today about uh, some litigation that is known as the pushbacks litigation because that was the name of a government scheme which we'll describe in a minute. My name is Michael Skrine. I'm a litigation partner at Reed Smith and I'm going to introduce you to the voices of my colleagues and they will tell you their own names. Well, on the assumption that I'm next, Michael, thanks for that. It's Richard Gunn here. I'm a partner in the shipping casualty team. Essentially, my role within the firm is to help clients with ship disasters, groundings, fires, bumps and scrapes, and all things nautical. And I've been with the firm now probably for you know, 25, no, 30 years, just coming up to 30 years. Over to you, Ellie. Hi, I'm Ellie Riz. I'm a senior associate in the Commercial Disputes Group in London with Reed Smith. I can't compete with Richard for longevity at the firm, but I did train here. And this is not my first foray into a judicial review claim with these two. Michael and I actually worked together on a separate judicial review late last year. So this is becoming a bit of a habit. So let me tell you what the pushbacks scheme was. There's a, a problem with the people using the English Channel, coming across the English Channel, who are refugees and other migrants who want to come to the United Kingdom and settle in the United Kingdom. So they come from France. It's not very far to go from England to France. When Richard next speaks, he can tell you how far it is as a a nautical man. But anyway, it's not very far. You can actually see France from the cliffs in uh, in England. And so because the government's uh, immigration scheme and asylum scheme has not been working very effectively, people have been coming across in small boats, very dangerous small boats from France to England. And this has been causing quite a lot of concern. And and particularly when occasionally there are accidents and there was one horrific loss of life in, I think it was November of, of last year. So the government thought that it wanted to do something about that. And it has had naval vessels and also border control vessels patrolling. But the scheme was to turn around boats in the middle of the channel and send them back to France. That was obviously a very dangerous thing to be doing. So we were challenging that. And uh, the result was that the matter was due to go to judicial review in the divisional court. And a a month or so ago, so when was that, Ellie? Can you tell us when that was? I think it's probably May. Yeah, that was, we were due to be in court the first week of May. Thank you. So in May and the uh, on the Sunday, the week before, the government uh, announced that they were abandoning the scheme. So there was no trial because there was a, a, an abandonment of the scheme. Now there's a new scheme, which is to send people who do get into this country to uh, Rwanda instead of the United Kingdom, either in order to be processed or just to stay in Rwanda. So that is uh, in itself a a very different and controversial scheme. So how how do we get into this, I think, is the next thing to explain to you. We're a a very large firm, a very large litigation firm. Uh, We have lots of different specialist skills. 
And I was just ruminating on the, the problem in uh, November and was really feeling quite um, appalled by the, the scheme itself and thought that something ought to be done about it. The obvious thing would be a judicial review. In other words, for the courts to intervene and decide on whether this was lawful or not. And I thought, well, is this something that we've actually got anything to contribute on as a firm? Um, and that made me think, well, we, we obviously did because we have a strong nautical practice. So I asked Richard whether he was up for getting involved in this, and he very quickly said yes. Uh, and so that is what I thought that we could bring to it so that we could combine our knowledge of uh, public law, because as Ellie was just explaining, uh, she and I had done quite a large case very shortly before that, and I've been doing administrative law cases for longer than uh, the time that Richard's been at the firm, so quite a long time. I also thought that we, not only would we have the knowledge, but we would have the ability to get in touch with specialist barristers and bring them onto the project. So, Ellie, would you like to outline the public law team for our listeners? Thanks, Michael. The public law team that we got in touch with were the barristers of Matrix Chambers. Specifically, we asked Chris Butler QC and Jim Raybottom to work with us. They're both public law specialists. They have really detailed knowledge about how to handle when we say public law or administrative law, we're talking about sort of the law that governs relationships between bodies and then the state or the government. And interestingly, when we got in touch with Chris and Jim, they were already sort of in demand. They'd been asked by another claimant to represent them in a separate challenge to this pushbacks policy. We thought this was actually a great opportunity to have the benefit of their skills linking those claims together. I thought they were absolutely fantastic. Chris, calm and in control, and clearly used to taking the government head on. And then Jim, absolutely all over the details. So it was a great team from that perspective. Thank you, Ellie. Now, Richard, what about on the maritime law side? Would you like to fill our audience in on that? Yeah, thanks, uh, Michael. Yeah, well, one of the things when we spoke, as you recall, was whether or not it was, in fact, likely to be breaching international law or uh, as incorporated into English law. And so we realised that the administrative team that uh, Ellie and you had put together uh, probably didn't have that specialist knowledge. So that's what required us to look for uh, a barrister with that level of skill. I'd recently finished um, a fairly complicated collision case with James Turner QC of Quadrant Chambers. Uh, he's quite active on Twitter, and I think he'd posted something uh, on this anyway and on uh, LinkedIn I believe, in relation to the pushbacks policy, as he considered it to be bizarre in the extreme. And uh, so I thought he'd be a useful person. So I contacted him and he was signed up straight away on a pro bono basis, as we were doing, which I thought was a fantastic commitment. And you're absolutely right, Richard, about how little the non-maritime lawyers knew and understood of maritime law, any of us, I think. So that was wonderful to get him on board. And then it wasn't just barristers, was it? We needed an expert because of the, the safety implications of this scheme. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. Well, we might come on and talk a little bit more about the expert in due course. But the initial view anyway, was that we did need 
an independent uh, expert. I mean, I'm a master mariner. I can take a view on uh, on marinery type things that take place uh, in the channel. But uh, our initial view was, well, we probably needed an independent expert rather than my, some, someone might say biased view on it. And of course, there are a number of experts out there that would be suitably qualified to that. But I decided on uh, Captain John Simpson, who's been around uh, quite a bit. He has his consultancy, Solis, and is well known for for those sorts of businesses. And I contacted him and asked him what his view on the policies were, on the basis of what we knew at the time, of course, which was simply in the press. And he, like any other seafarer, thought, thought it was appalling and um, couldn't believe that other seafarers, like the Border Force, were being asked to treat those at sea in such a way which was likely to give rise to death and or injury. So he was equally fully on board and, again, on a pro bono basis. A fantastic support from the team with that. He was indeed wonderful. And so that was that was the full compliment, except that we didn't have a client. So we had to plug that gap. So I got in touch with the, the Good Law Project, which is well known in relation to things particularly challenging government and, and other other things, I think. So, But anyway, I'll get in touch with the um, Good Law Project and ask them, ask Joe Maugham, whether there was anybody that, whether they wanted to be involved or, or, or knew of anybody. They came back to us and, and said uh, that uh, Channel Rescue would like to be involved. And Channel Rescue were people who had been monitoring what exactly was going on at sea. The, the the area in England that is that is closest to France is an area that uh, has cliffs, quite high cliffs. So up on the cliffs, you could could see quite a lot. As I said earlier, you could see you can see France from there, but you could you got a pretty good view. So they were up there with their telescopes and, and watching what was going on. And they had spotted some manoeuvres where border force using jet skis were physically turning boats around, were pushing them around. There was some controversy in the uh, divisional court as to whether the right way to describe that was ramming them. But um, however you want to describe it, they were engaging with the boats physically so that they were no longer facing in the same direction as they were before, whatever you want to call it. So they saw that, they filmed it, and so they were actually witnesses to what had been going on, which was an important thing that uh, they could contribute, as well as being a, a concerned client and people who knew quite a lot about what was going on and saw people when they landed and so on. So that was, that was us complete. But there were actually three claims and three firms of solicitors. Ellie, would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I mentioned before, there are actually a number of different bases on which the pushbacks policy could be challenged. There are a number of different clients, entities that were interested in challenging the policy, unsurprisingly. And so whilst Channel Rescue were one of them, we also found ourselves alongside the Public Commercial Services Union, otherwise known as PCSU, and they represent 80% of border force officials. Those would have been the individuals being asked to actually enact the policy and carry out the pushbacks. And Care for Calais were also joined into that claim. Those guys were represented by Duncan Lewis. 
And they had the same council team, as I mentioned, on us on the public law side. So that was Chris Balacusi and Jim Raybottom. And then Freedom from Torture also were bringing a claim of their own, and they were represented by Lede. So you probably have got the sense from what Richard's been saying, and Richard being on this podcast, that our claim focused quite heavily on some international law and maritime law elements, that being a specific area of expertise that Reed Smith can uniquely bring the firm of this size. So our claim focused on three separate elements, we said that it was internally inconsistent and therefore irrational that it mandated compliance with international maritime law, but then directed or encouraged border force officials to act in an incompatible manner. We also said that the policy directed or encouraged border force officials to breach the merchant shipping regulations 1996. And moreover, we said that it directed or encouraged border force officials to act contrary to the ordinary practice of seamen and thereby contrary to the implied limitations of the Immigration Act. Separately, PCSU and Care for Calais were arguing, firstly, that the Immigration Act didn't actually provide any powers at all for the Home Office to compel vessels to travel from UK waters back to France, so it was ultra-virus. And moreover, that the policy would inevitably give rise to breaches of Article 2 and Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And those are the articles that cover right to life and the right not to be subjected to torture or cruel or inhuman or degrading treatment so pretty fundamental and then freedom for torture were also arguing that the policy itself had no basis in domestic law it authorized unlawful conduct and it contravened the refugee convention as well as bringing up articles three and four of the european convention on human rights so the effect of that was that there were three very different claims that were being put forward, although they were all obviously aiming in the same direction. And the court immediately understood the, the differences between them. The, this is the administrative court where these public law issues are, are fought out. Uh, and so the court allowed all three claims to go forward on the basis that they would all be heard together by the same judge or, or, if, or judges if it turned out to be more than one judge. Uh, and it did turn out to be more than one judge. The matter was dealt with as an important case. It obviously was very important from, from a, a political point of view, from the point of view of national interest in this very controversial policy. And uh, so it went to what's called a divisional court. And a divisional court is normally two judges, and it's it's common for one of them to be a lord or lady justice, in other words, a uh, a judge from a higher court, from the court of appeal. So that's that's quite a common way of of combining things. And as it happens, both of them are lawyers who were steeped in administrative law in public law. Clive Lewis was a public law practitioner, and so was Heather Williams. So that was where we found ourselves in the divisional court. Richard, I recall the first time that James Turner stood up there. We, was, we were talking afterwards, and he said it was very strange, and it was like his, he felt like his first day at school. Would you like to uh, comment on any differences that you may have perceived between the admin court and the, and the commercial court or admiralty court? Yeah, that's right. It, and that struck me, that those differences uh, as well. And it's why, of course, we had admin law specialists as well as James, who's a commercial court 
an Admiralty Court specialist. It, it was quite different, actually, and it surprised me the differences. For me, the main difference, I think, was uh, well, there were two main differences. One was to do with the management of the case and submissions actually at the hearing. It's fair to say in, in a directions hearing, of course, there would be much toing and froing between uh, the judge uh, and counsel in terms of uh, how that would work and what directions need to be made. But nevertheless, it still sort of follows a process of uh, one of the barristers putting forward his, his particular views. Judge might question some of it. Other guy gets a, a chance to have a crack back and then there will be a, a response. So, that, so there was that element to it, which to a certain extent, I think, follows in the admin court. But the other element of it was the in, in a hearing, there are, of course, quite strict timetables set down in the commercial court, whereby each party gets his allotted time. And at the end of it, that's probably about it. And everyone knows what those timings are before and plans accordingly. Now, it might be that that was something that was known, but it did strike me as being slightly, not haphazard, but more flexible in some ways in relation to the arguments that could be made. But James's new boy in school point, I think, refers to the fact that the interaction between judges and barristers, the fairly regular interruption and questioning and challenging of issues that you tend not to get at that level of, of hearing in the commercial court. Once you get into the higher courts, whether it's Court of Appeal, of course, or the Supreme Court, then the, you get a lot more interaction. And perhaps, as you say, because this is a divisional court with that Court of Appeal type element to it, perhaps that's what engenders this, this debate and challenge of the barrister's point to a greater depth than one would see in the High Court. I think that one of the differences that you noted and were not, I think, very happy about was in relation to the use of experts, Richard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As, as, we just, as I just said a short while ago, we thought, well, we need an expert because we'll need an independent expert in order to put forward their views. If, we th- if I think about the Admiralty Court, for example, which is a specialist court where the Admiralty judge hears Admiralty matters as his day job on a regular basis, even in that court, what is required are, outside of collision cases, there's independent expert evidence from both sides. In a collision case, the Admiralty judge is advised by mariners, nautical assessors provided by Trinity House. So in both those cases... There's expert evidence available to the court, which goes to the meaning and the actions of those on board ships. So when one thinks about the points that Ellie just made about what we were arguing in terms of the ordinary practice of seamen, for example, or compliance with the Merchant Shipping Act as regards the collision regs, the collision regulations which which guide the actions of, of ships at sea. The Admiralty judge and High Court judges in non-collision type matters, but nevertheless seafaring matters, are always guided by experts who who can say, well, this is or or, or is not out with the ordinary practice of seamen. And so I was expecting that, and I think we all were, which is why we got John on board to be able to provide that independent advice. But as we discovered in a judicial review hearing, Expert evidence is rarely allowed, and 
the basis of which understood it is in essence that, well, but if in fact expert evidence is required, then it's one's putting forward a point of view on what the position might be. And that, of course, is not what judicial review is about. It has to be the action might be unlawful, not necessarily unlawful at some time or not, depending on the particular actions or otherwise of the of the parties. So I was surprised when the permission to adduce expert evidence uh, was refused because it meant essentially that the judges, none of whom I suspect are nautical experts, uh, would be taking a view on what was the ordinary practice of seamen based on, a, one assumes, on a commonsensical approach. One of the strange things about the, the case was that uh, we, we did notice one similarity between perhaps the, the maritime world and the admin court, and that is that um, so much of what uh, was being said by the barristers and by the judge or judges consisted of nautical terms, which I was going to suggest that we explore, but I don't think we have time to do that, sadly. But all our listeners can think about how much they, when they're talking, they're talking about nautical things without realising it. I just want quickly to ask Ellie whether there were any particular challenges that she wants to refer to, challenges that the case posed for conducting this. So there are a couple that spring to mind, actually. The first was certainly for us, I think, the interplay between our legal minds and just the understanding of the underlying urgency and seriousness of this policy. So the whole judicial review claim process, we were done in about four months. And there's an emphasis in this type of claim in moving quickly, because you are usually dealing with a fairly serious point of principle. But at the same time, as lawyers, we want to be strategically smart about this. We have made applications to things like interim relief. And once that was refused, we were considering an appeal. But these things all take time. And there came a point in time where we were trying to, I suppose we were trying to feel the balance between bringing the best possible legal claim there was, but on the other hand, trying to get this claim to a hearing as quickly as we could, because realistically, every day we delayed was a day that this pushback policy was in operation in the channel, and there might be an incident where there was a loss of life as a result. And the other interesting point of challenge that I think came up for us was actually in terms of getting a hold of the fairly highly confidential documents that this policy is based on. And it was the first time I think any of us have had to deal with quite such serious confidentiality restrictions. And the government obviously had very legitimate concerns about there being a risk of a leak of these policy documents. And potentially, if people smugglers became aware of the detail of this policy, they might be able to use that to their benefit to circumvent the deterrent effect of the pushbacks policy. But ultimately, we came to an agreement to use, and the court sanctioned, the use of a confidentiality ring, which includes some very specific undertakings, including that we would all keep documents in a safe at all times not being used. And particular challenge we found there is actually hunting down a safe in our London office, which um, I'd be pleased to say we do now have, although given this is a public podcast, I might not tell everybody where it is. Thank you, Ellie. And so I think just to, to wrap up on this, this was a, a big project undertaken in a very short time. We spent a th- over a thousand hours or about a thousand hours in just the five months that, that it lasted. And we, we, the claim form was issued the day before Christmas Eve. 
we do a lot of pro bono work in, in the firm. Uh, we were delighted to be able to use our bench strength and our specialist skills across different working groups on this very important challenge to government policy. It was very complex. It was interesting. It had an excellent result. We're very glad we did it. And Ellie and Richard, I just want to say it's been a pleasure to have worked with you on this. Well, likewise, Michael, and it's been a pleasure working with you. And I've learned so much, actually, in relation to that aspect of the law that I thought it was really worthwhile as an educative position just for me, not only for or the then the result which we got, which I think was was a fantastic result for, for all concerned. So thank you for thinking of it, Michael. Thanks both. I just add my personal thanks. It's been amazing. I wouldn't say let's do this again soon because here's hoping that, you know, we don't have to bring too many of these claims, but it is a fantastic experience. It's great to use our skills to the benefit of people who really need us. Dispute and Perspective is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's litigation and dispute resolution practice, please email disputesandperspective at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.